0: Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam Xavier McNeil. On today's podcast, I'm chopping it up with none other than Dr. Tamika Y. Nunley, Associate Professor of American History at Oberlin College and Conservatory. On today's podcast, we're discussing her brand new book, It's amazing, y'all. You're gonna love it, specifically when you buy it. And this book is at the threshold of liberty, women, slavery, and shifting identities in Washington, DC. And like I said, it was published in this amazing year, right, of 2021 by our friends at the University of North Carolina Press. Oh, and before we get started, Let's give a virtual congratulations to Dr. Nunley, who's going to be taking her talents, not to South Beach, but to Ithaca, New York, to be a new faculty member in the Department of History at Cornell University in the fall of 2021. Congratulations, Dr. Nunley, and also welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: Good, good. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that introduction.
0: Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we we've uh, we've seen a lot of each other in uh, in the Zoom streets, and we're now in the ZenCaster streets. Um, yes. So so, <laughs> so it, it's great to 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 be able to see you and talk to you um, about your book because um, you know we were chatting it up um, at um, uh, Dr. Fuller Glimpse uh, roundtable as well, and so you know we we gonna we gonna we gonna love our, our you and your book in, in this forum right here, and people gonna buy the book. And, and do the things. so um to to get started with uh, the questions for to, for today, um at the threshold of liberty is your first monograph. Congratulations yes. again. Yes. Um, so can you tell us about your journey to this project?
1: Absolutely. Um, so this book began. Um, as a project that I was pursuing as a graduate student at the University of Virginia, I was getting my PhD in history, and one of the questions that historians of the 19th century are oftentimes concerned with is quite big questions, big field questions, like um, what caused the Civil War or who freed the slaves, right? And so um, this book was sort of um, sort of emerged from the question of who freed the enslaved. And so some historians have decided to sort of approach the question by looking at the activities of political Republicans. Um, some have come at this from the perspective of looking at abolitionists, and others have thought about it from the perspective of the soldiers on the ground who are making space for freedom um, over the course of the Civil War. And then there's a um, sort of a newer generation of scholars that are building upon the work of Black historians that are looking at the actions of the enslaved and how they were initiators of their own freedom. And so The book actually began with that last chapter um, where I was interested in learning about where were the Black women in all of this? Were they as marginal as uh, Civil War historiography assumes? Um, And I was also interested in Washington, D.C. as a really important place, um, one that becomes a very critical geographic space, um, by the mid 19th century, um, before when the capital was first established on the Potomac, nobody really cared about the capital other than you know people who were political leaders. But um, you know it was seen as this kind of makeshift village that hadn't quite developed yet, had not had the kind of um, development that we saw in cities like. Philadelphia, Richmond, Charleston and Boston and New York. And so um, this city sort of took a minute to kind of get off the ground. But by the time we get to the American Civil War, it becomes actually quite significant politically, militarily, and certainly for African Americans. And so I came to this project wanting to know um, how Black women really became the authors of their freedom. And what I found is that the emancipation policies and legislation and military orders were absolutely critical to the process of emancipation over the course of the war. But oftentimes those policies had limits. Um, and so black women tested those limits and actually broadened the reach of those policies by what they were doing on the ground. And what they were doing on the ground was um, going face to face, challenging slaveholders, uh, challenging s- slaveholders who refused to free them, challenging slaveholders who abducted their children and unlawfully apprenticed them, um, challenging um, slaveholders who unlawfully held them in bondage, even in places where emancipation took effect. And so it began with that, that question. And what I started to realize, and you know, I started to suspect um, that this was not something unique to 1861 to 1865, that this was actually something that had been happening for many centuries. And so um, because I was originally trained in Black Studies, I was trained to think about African-American political actions as a part of a broader continuum of a liberation struggle. And so having that Black Studies framework um, helped me to locate um, Black women's liberty claims much earlier in the Capitol um, from the very beginning, from its founding. And so another sort of sub-argument of uh, the book is that this was happening well before um, Abraham Lincoln got behind emancipation, behind but way before Union soldiers got behind emancipation, and Republicans and abolitionists got behind emancipation. And so it became clear to me, right, that we had sort of artificially uh, marginalized the voices of African Americans um, who occupied very different um, statuses in terms of their legal um, status, um, but many of them were thinking about liberty well before we sort of acknowledged in the historiography.
0: Now, that's now that's dope. Um, I di- Now, like I've been in prep for the interview and also mm-hmm. for my own work as well. Mm-hmm. I've been listening to the different discussions and I haven't heard or, or I, I guess I personally didn't know um, that you uh, had a Black Studies background. Now, I'm guessing mm-hmm. that was when you were um, at UVA?
1: No. So I got my BA in Black World Studies. Okay, um, okay. I'm from Miami of Ohio, and then I got my uh, master's from um, uh, at the African American Studies Program at Columbia, and I was trained by people like Dr. Manning Marable and Farrah Jasmine Griffin, and so um, that really um, is sort of the basis upon which I come to what I study and how I frame um, what I study, and then history came along later on when I did my graduate work at UVA for my MA and PhD in history. And that kind of gave me the methodological approaches that I would use in order to provide evidence for the kind of frameworks I was interested in.
0: Well, oh, that's awesome. That's awesome mm-hmm. because your, your work to me, um, it provides a lot of, um, re- really, like I said, for myself as someone who's writing about um, the 18th century that goes into the 19th century, like the War of 1812 era, Learning about DC was something I realized in my more so mid Atlantic regional training, hadn't really got to um, as much. Um, I'd read uh, uh, Colored No More from uh, Dr. Lindsay um, and had her on, I guess, two years ago around this time. But um, in terms of my understanding of DC's role in, you know, specifically the early, you know, portion of the 19th century, your book is is now, you know, essential in, in our historiographical understanding of uh, of dc and in particular the potomac and the chesapeake bay um as well and so um you, you spoke about dc as obviously the the center of your work and also how um you know where the beginning of this work really began in you know not the early period but actually in this american civil war era um can you also really get to going back to your um to your time in graduate school and and where where did dc in particular like, when was it during your graduate training that you were like, D.C., that is me. That, that's an area that I'm going to be focusing on.
1: Well, it's it's interesting. Um, D.C. is um, something that my advisor and I decided upon. Um, and mainly um, because I was living in D.C. at the time and um, commuting um, to Virginia. And the archives were fascinating um, and largely untapped with the exception of a few foundational seminal scholars of D.C. studies. And so I think D.C. studies is experiencing kind of a renaissance a bit um, with works like Chocolate City, A Colored No More, um, and um, also an example for All the Land with Kate Mazur. And now William Thomas's new book as well is um, engaging in D.C. history very thoughtfully. Also, Georgetown is doing some really important work on the history of slavery in D.C. And so... um, to me, it, it felt like it was not, um, it was a largely untapped, um, you know, well of, of sources and and people um, that we had not thought about. And I was particularly fascinated, as someone who was living there, of this liberal reputation of, of, of D.C., right? That it has this very progressive reputation. Um, many of us Black folks know that there is a thriving Black elite in in D.C., right? And so um, I became curious, how long um, does that lineage span, right, of having a thriving African-American middle class? Um, To what degree was D.C. really liberal or was it actually a southern city? Right. And so those earlier chapters of the book helped me see that a D.C. was not a liberal place. It was not a progressive place. The degree to which it became progressive had everything to do with the actions of African Americans and the building of African American autonomous institutions. Um, And that's where we get that kind of liberal notion of of D.C., but it started off as a slave city, right? And and that was intentional, right, to carve um, this capital out of the oldest slaveholding states. In, um in the in the Union right um, and so people have debated right how intentional were the um, founding leaders the founding generation in making sure that slavery was protected or to what degree did they really propose right this institution as being sort of a very gradual um a gradually dissipating um, force and but so the the decision right to relocate the capital from a place like Philly, Right to the Potomac, um, has a lot to do with the political commitment to slavery that we don't often like to acknowledge. And while I do think that there is some political nuance to people like Jefferson and Madison and Washington when it comes to their commitment to slavery... Um, in the moment in which the capital was decided upon and um, they decided whether or not slavery was going to exist there, right? They made a particular decision that would have consequences and that we cannot change, right? That is just a fact of that history of the city. And so it became kind of an adopted um, city to me. Now, if I had to pick a place and say like, that's my place, it's Virginia. Like I Honestly, I could talk about Virginia forever. And so uh, what I loved about this project is I got to talk about the nation's capital. It's, um, you know, sort of how it coincides. Black women's self-making collides and coincides with the nation's self-making. I got to engage with places like Maryland and Virginia. um, And and those places were very important to my understanding as well.
0: And and that's great because, um, you know, don't worry. You' gonna have another time to talk about Virginia. You oh yes. Yeah. You, you you got. Don't worry. Uh, you, you better get comfy in the new books in African American Studies space because you got a lot of stuff for for us to talk about. Uh, uh, another another book. Uh, another another article. So yeah. you know, hang tight. We 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 got you. We got you. Um. And so, you know, uh, you know, a lot of uh, our listeners would not be surprised of uh, me asking this question of uh, someone as uh, so prolific and, and so, 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 so uh, amazing with all the things they've written uh, and their writing, right, uh, presently. Um, can you speak to us about your, your writing process? Um, mm-hmm. What was the writing process like for the book project? And also, did your writing habits change much? Have they changed much since your graduate studies um, at UVA?
1: Yes, they've they've changed dramatically, and I'll be completely transparent with you because I think this will help somebody. Um, when I first started writing my dissertation, it was really poorly written. It was not good. I was not a good writer, and um, and so. I had to really study what good writing was. And then I also really relied upon my mentors um, to provide feedback for me. And so when they gave me feedback, because they're so busy, right, and, and prolific in their own right, um, when whatever they said, I held on to it like it was gold. And so if they engaged with my document in any way, I took that advice to heart and I made sure it applied in every other area of my manuscript. And so I became, I was a student of writing um, in graduate school. And I think that that's really important because the pressure in graduate school is to perform, right? Um, But we don't always create space for having a posture of growth, uh, for having a posture of learning. And so I you know really had to learn writing learn who I wanted to be as a writer and then really um really consume the kinds of books that I knew modeled the kind of writing that I admired right and so um sometimes I would start off a writing session with just reading a couple pages from a book that I thought was really written very beautifully And that could range from a novel to a history book or to whatever, right? Um, But reading um, really coincided with my growth as as a scholar. And my habits changed from writing in big spurts to try to get these chapters done to now as a professor where I have a daily writing practice, where Monday through Friday, I write every day. Um, And some days... I write for 20 minutes. Some days I write for two hours if I'm lucky and I got child care. Right, um, and right. so um, what I found is that you can't really have a robust writing practice if you don't have a robust reading practice. And so for me, it also became important that I had a target um, list of books or articles that I wanted to engage with on a given week. And what that would do was, A, it would keep me well read, but then it would also translate in who I was speaking to in the book or the article that I was writing. And so I could begin to invite these different scholars into the conversation I want to have or that they were already having, right? Invite myself into their conversation and begin to bring those two pieces together. And so, um, what I wish I would have known differently as a graduate student is that what you're really doing is training yourself to live the life of the mind. Um, and so it's not solely about kind of getting this end product done. You got to get it done. So please do that, right? But embrace the opportunity to really cultivate what your reading and writing practice is going to look like moving ahead and see it as you investing in your future self, your future practices, right? And who you're going to be in the future. And so even though I've been really busy with um, trying to, you know, promote the book, I've been very committed um, to having a, a consistent writing practice because ultimately that's that's who I am. Right. And so, um, I stopped running away from writing. I stopped being afraid of writing. I stopped, um, being overly critical of myself as a writer and just decided that if every day I put something on my writing, that that is going to bear fruit in some way in the long run. And so, um, I just say that as someone who was not always the most, um, you know, um, well-read or the, the best writer at all. Um, certainly not in my cohort and then throughout the trajectory of my life. What I knew, I knew that my strengths were my ideas, right? But I knew that I had a journey in order to figure out how I wanted those ideas to be expressed and how to do that most effectively. And so whenever my mentors made an effort, you know, to look at my work, I took that very seriously. Um, and so that helped kind of train me as well.
0: And I'm not going to lie, if someone who has a dissertation proposal that has to go to my advisor, hey, Dr. Jumbar, I know you're listening. Uh, then, yeah, I'm like, yeah, she probably like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. you better go, Dr. Nunley. You better tell that tell that person <laughs> over there. <laughs> she, she would say something to that, too. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm glad that you did take us there because I, I'm sure for, for many of our listeners who are graduate students, um, or even you know, professors as well. Um, you know it, it, you know our book is you know about people getting free, but you know, let's get free in terms of, you know the the yoke that is on us sometimes in terms of our, um, you know, our feelings about writing or reading or whatever it is in the process that is kind of like a, a holding holding folk back. Um, but that actually is a great segue to think about challenges. So with mm-hmm. this particular book project and, and at any level, at any conceivable level, What was your biggest challenge that what was the biggest challenge uh, that you faced anywhere within the process that that you wouldn't mind uh, letting the folks know about?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I'm writing the second book and I'm writing it very differently. It writes much more smoothly. There are different sets of challenges with every project. Um, And so that's important to know. This book, I mean, I feel like I arm wrestled this book down until the very last day. Submitted this book, I mean, this book. um, I think everyone at UNC Press like did cartwheels when this book finally (laughs) appeared in print um, because it had just went through a journey. It went through several readers' revisions. I, in addition to revising um, the manuscript before, um, I submitted it to an editor, you know, maybe six times I rewrote it. Um, by the time I got to the editor, I rewrote it three times. And so at one point it had five chapters and then like one of the chapters had to go cause it didn't fit. And then, you know, I created five chapters again, and then one of the chapters needed to be split into two distinct chapters. And so when I tell you, you know, I wrestled with this book, um, I definitely wrestled with it. That wrestle, especially with the initial book, is a part of the process. You're discovering who you are as a writer. You are identifying with your, what your strengths are, and you are grappling and wrestling with your weaknesses. And so one of the weaknesses that I acknowledge in my writing is organization. The biggest challenge of this book is that any one of these chapters, it could have been its own book. In every one of these chapters is a hip- whole distinct historiography. <laughs> so, yep, yep. So staying well read on prostitution and sex work, you know, both in the U.S. and beyond the U.S., staying, you know, abreast of, like, the Civil War historiography, oh, man. Right? keeping up with the education in 19th century America historiography, keeping up, right, with um, the legal history, right, and then the slavery and capitalism um, historiography. And so there were moments where it felt really unwieldy. And so, um, The challenge that I arrived at is that my analysis was very tethered to these terms of self-making, improvisation, and navigation. And my greatest fear was that it was going to read too jargony, but I knew I could not thread all of these distinctive historiographies and issues together without those terms. And so the term stayed, right? And so I needed that framework in order to make sense of how collectively um, these came together. But the blessing in it, the blessing in the struggle, right, is that it allowed me to tell a story in which these women's legal statuses and identities were allowed to change, right? And so for many of us, right, we write, I've, I've written pieces that are solely about slavery, right, and we can only see these women in the context of their um, legal status as enslaved people, same thing with free Black women. Same thing with refugee women. Same thing with, you write, fugitive women. And so, what it allowed me to do is tell a story about how this their statuses could be very liminal and changing and malleable um, over time. And so, there was the challenge and the wrestle, but then there was the the fruit, which I think um, was the best that I could do anyway. <laughs>
0: Look, and, and you and you did that thing. Let me tell you. You know, I one of the parts, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, you know, I have um always and forever, um, in my twenty eight years, organization, whether it means like being organized generally speaking in life, car, house, whatever, writing, oh, a lot of great ideas, a lot of like all that over there. But putting that together, like in the writing sense on the page, still like tough. But the blessing in the storm is your book provides really almost like a textbook of 19th century uh, or early 19th century DC, right? And I think that one of the parts I enjoyed the most, especially after you took us there to um, talk to, to us about your challenges, I think on the flip side, it makes me think about how you can your your book is so lush because it prov- it takes us to so many different places ensconced within one area so um and, and also a particular i guess primarily a you know the majority of the stories between i guess what 1800 and 1865 for the most part so, so you get so much within 65 pages or 65 years um, so I think that in terms of people teaching classes, like I can think about Dr. Hillary Green teaching this class, in one of her nineteenth-century Black education classes, or uh, Jarvis Givens to talk about that in Black education too, or you know Dr. Lashawn Harris to talk about you know uh, a sex work because of obviously her amazing book too. So so I think that you're so many different people can pull on on your work because you're very diverse in your um, in your, in, in all the different themes that you have that coalesce as well with the writing. Um, and so one of the great things that really weaves everything together is an understanding of really the legal space, right. For people who is, you know, we're talking about a black DC women here who, you know, are seen as chattel, you know, part of secret secular room, the whole bit for, you know, that obviously Dr. Jennifer Morgan speaks about too with her work. So I'm just, just always fascinated. How did black women develop the legal knowledge uh, they ultimately wielded in their pursuit of liberty?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think um, first of all, it starts with community and kinship, right? It starts with being in DC And having interactions with people with whom you have developed intimate bonds, who you can trust and who you can share with whom you could share your liberty dreams with. Right. And so I think kinship is at the core. Right. Of how. Um, one sister will put another sister on, on some knowledge of who is willing to represent her in court, right? Um, what documents you might need, how much money you might need to save up in order to do this, or are there any um, sort of white abolitionists and allies who are willing, right, to um, be an advocate and support and put something on their liberty claims in court as well. But also, if you think about it, Black people, and the ways in which they're surveyed, right, from the beginning, right, and, you know, for centuries by slave codes and, right, um, Black codes, um, it doesn't take long to become well-versed in the law and the legal terrain, especially when you are subject to that law. So also just the everyday experiences of navigating surveillance, navigating power, um, whether it's where you work or where you sleep right, or where you venture into, right, um, is a kind of education and epistemology of what it means to be Black in the legal contours of Blackness in that space. So that's that. Then there's the actual like kinship hookup, right, where folks from church, folks from different institutions or washerwomen that you're working with in the alley, right, sort of share some knowledge of what they heard someone else told them about somebody else um, getting freedom. So that's that network that's happening as well. And then there is, right, this abolitionist assault on slavery in the nation's capital where there are covert and overt people, uh, white allies who are willing to help do that work as well. But I think also, right, um, we are seeing in the beginning of the 19th century, the emergence of the professionalization of um, American law and the legal profession in general. Right. And so you see many folks actually who are willing to represent enslaved people in court, Um And a lot of that doesn't have to do with them being abolitionists. Many of them are actually slaveholders, but they're really interested, right, in this emerging development of the law and this execution of the law and being able to do it for their own educational purposes and also for money as well, Um, but to build their portfolio of legal knowledge as well. Um, So you have many people who are not necessarily, um, you know, sympathizers, but who are people who are very interested and invested in learning what is possible within this new legal framework that's been created in this pretty relatively new country, right?
0: And, and it's fascinating because um, one of the aspects that's really, you know, I think really cool about your work is um, knowledge production. Um, and, and we're not even just, we're not even simply just talking about your education chapter. Um, so one of the areas I'm, I'm really most interested in, you know, with my own work too, um, is how people, how enslaved people, especially enslaved women, um, develop geographic, um, and really spatial knowledge, even of places that they have physically never been. Um, and so with DC being situated near, um, the Potomac uh, river and the Chesapeake Bay region, um, you know, for those running into and out of the city, geographic knowledge and mobility, were essential to really, if we're talking about self-emancipation, to uh, self-emancipation attempts, for instance. Um, so many folks listening might be surprised to learn about knowledgeable Black women and girls, uh, specifically about their, you know, knowledge of their space. Right? It sounds ridiculous as I'm even saying it, but read some of the comments, uh, of some <laughs> yeah. and you'll, you'll realize how regular and unfortunate that kind of thought is. Um, so in terms of your own work on um, Black women's fugitivity and specific to um, the the women of your book, um, what does your cert- research show us about Black women self-emancipators and their uses of space for freedom purposes and their own knowledge and, you know, the different forms that knowledge comes in?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here's the thing. Um you know, we have a very particular way of thinking about knowledge production, and it oftentimes begins right um, at the at institutions, right, and and with European. Um, epistemologies of knowledge production. But what really becomes critical to this story is African epistemologies um, of a knowledge production. And that can range from both medicinal knowledge, geographic knowledge, political knowledge, kinship knowledge, right, all the kinds of knowledge, right, um, in which these women um, carry with them wherever they go. And so what's in, what's important for me to convey in this book is that wherever these women are going they are bringing with them knowledge right And so when they encounter one another, they are sharing that knowledge right um, mm. and they're sharing what they know. But even in the context of right some of the most um, violent encounters, right what does it mean to be a part of a slave coffle having come from a different part? of the South to DC, right, you're bringing a particular kind of knowledge with you about what that journey looked like, where you were from, what that place was like. And so these women become walking carriers of really important knowledge that very much shape, um, Black epistemologies of place and geography. And, um, you know, that word of mouth is absolutely um, critical. They're also listening in on people, right, that they work for, right, or people that they're forced to be around. And that knowledge is also being um, communicated. Some people, right, have lineages in places like DC or Virginia or Maryland um, that span, right, um, several generations. And so that knowledge is passed down um, through families over time. And so um, William Thomas does a really good job in his new book, Right, thinking about the sort of genealogy of knowledge around what is possible for freedom, right? And this is passed down orally through um through familial conversations. And so these these people have knowledge and you know and they know how to use it. And not only that, but when we see the the nation sort of going to war, white folks know they have knowledge, they draw upon that knowledge, right? And from their own advantage whether it's the war of 1812 or where or if it's the american civil war right um they're looking to enslave people right to share knowledge you know of what they are unfamiliar with right and so um whether right the the white americans at the time want to acknowledge it or not right they rely on that knowledge also thinking about medical knowledge is really important and i've been thinking about this a lot lately um, on just sort of how there's a huge genealogy of medicinal um, cures and um, plant knowledge, right, um, botany um, that Black women have been carrying with them across the Atlantic, right, uh, for several mm-hmm. centuries, and so um, that knowledge is 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 most certainly there.
0: And oh my gosh, you you just you just took me back a couple years to two shows that I am so still annoyed that are not on television anymore. One being Underground. You see, you know, I was going there and Mercy Street. And so those were my two shows. Like Mercy Street, I think, only had one season and Underground had two. But with the second season, not knowing that there wasn't going to be no third season. So, you know, I and so you're... Your discussion about um, enslaved people using space, Rosalie, of course, uh, 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 Journey Smollett um, in real life, and and also um, looking at uh, Mercy Street. Believe I think it was in like Alexandria, um, if I'm not mistaken, and and the medicinal aspect too. So uh, two shows that uh, wish I was there. Um, But it's it's great that you take us to shows because some of our greatest shows, like Underground. Take us into the inner lives of the enslaved in ways that sometimes even great history books really, or really fail at. Um. So 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 excited to hear your answer to this because especially when you're talking about your writing process, I'm starting now to think more about hmm. You know the lay of the land in terms of theater, right? And theater production and how to how to write a script. So. You so effectively talk about the inner lives of the enslaved women um, and girls that you that you encountered in the archive. What tools did you use to do this so well?
1: I don't know if I did it well, but I did it and people are either going to love it or hate it. Right. It's always like a group of folks who are like, yes. Right. And there's some other folks who are like, that didn't work out for you. Right. And um, and this is where I think, um, well, first of all, I got the courage to do it from Sadia Hartman and from Marissa Fuentes. So I have to acknowledge that. Right. That they gave me the courage. They said it was OK. For me to do it right, or at least to to venture into that space, um, I don't think I'm at the point of critical fabulation, but I do um, try to understand the possibilities of their world. And I say that phrase a lot because I'm I want to be transparent, right? That I can't make a conclusive statement about what happens right in the long run, but I can tell you about. The context and the conditions in which I understand this person is existing and and navigating in that moment, and this is why my my one of my favorite people to think about is Suki, and I knew Suki was going to begin the book right because here we have um, a a, a, a kind of textbook fugitive slave ad right that many historians have seen many versions of right, but it allowed me to demonstrate these kind of layered concepts that are helping me frame how um, this helps to tell the story of, of, of liberty. And so um, taking this source that historians have used, right, the kinds of sources that historians have used, and asking different questions of it has been instrumental, right? And so Suki's ad had been there, you know, in the Library of Congress, you know, for years, right? Um, but what kinds of questions had we been asking about fugitive slave ads? What kinds of questions have we been asking about, um, the women who appear in the primary source record, right? In the archive. Um, and so, you know, Marissa Fuentes allows us to sort of see the violence of the archive, um, its absences, its silences, right. And, um, and, and why it is problematic. Um, Sadia Hartman gives us the tools and the courage to be able to make something out of nothing, right? Um, And then I take the context of slavery in DC, right? And apply that to what I think could happen in their lives to begin to understand and tease out what their options are. Um, And so, so much of this is not necessarily about a conclusive interpretation of these women, but it's actually about... um, really probing the parameters of their lives and the possibilities of their worlds. Um, And I'm very transparent about that, right? That at this point the record stops and won't let me say anything else. So this was what could have happened, right? It could have happened this way. Mm -hmm. It could have happened that way. Right. But just being transparent um, and, and, and humble about, I can't know everything about Suki's life, but I'm going to say her name. Right. And Mm -hmm. you're going to get names, even if I can't, tell you a whole lot of information. I can tell you about the world in which they navigated.
0: And one of the great parts about the, about the book is that we get to not only learn about the worlds in which enslaved women tried to circumnavigate on their, um, on their journey, you know, toward freedom. Right. Um, that obviously not everybody got to, but, but many did. Um, but, You also talk about, you know, talking about inner lives again, about Black girls and Black girlhood, right? So I'm thinking about um, Dr. Crystal Webster, whose book is forthcoming, right? Also UNC Press, looking at um, Dr. Cabrera Baumgartner's work as well. Um, And so I think in Pursuit of Knowledge um, is is the title of her first book. And so just in, in that particular theme, along with including the importance of uh, self-making in your work. Can you talk about um, how did educational experiences shape Black girls' um, self-definition attempts? Because I thought mm-hmm. that was one of the most fascinating parts about your book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I well, first of all, it you know, girlhood is oftentimes generically absent from our studies right, of um, of enslaved people and free people, you know, during this time period. And the line between who, you know, at what point you become uh, an adult is very uh, shaky, right, during the 19th century. And so mm-hmm. I thought it was. Really important um, to think about, right? The broader trajectory of self-making that it doesn't just happen in adulthood, right? It begins very early as um, young people begin to make sense of their worlds and begin to make sense of themselves in it. And so, what I love about this school space is that the school space becomes a rehearsal space um, for what they're going to do when they leave that school space, right? Um, what I love about it, I mean, these letters from these little girls are so amazing, right? They are talking about Kansas, Nebraska, right? You know, they are saying the kinds of things that you would see Freddie Douglas saying in, you know, the North Star, but Same they're that. saying in these letters, right? And so what we see is, right, um, the, de- the emergence of a political consciousness, right? Um, their debut um, into the Black liberation struggle, right? And more broadly, and them being molded and groomed to become leaders of this movement, right? Um, and so, I love I love looking at um, sort of how they write, what they write, what they choose to write. You know, there's some parts where they're like creating their own fictionalized stories and their moral tales, and I just love just love seeing that. That was my favorite chapter to write, where I just kind of got goosebumps um, when I was when I was writing it because I'm just in awe. Of what they lived through, I'm in awe of their ability to see and perceive what's happening, right? And then, you know, I was so tickled, right, that the mayor said that these little girls were the, were a threat to the union, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like to me, like I couldn't have found a better um, story, right, um, of of how radical. Right, um, these little girls were, and, and and what they were thinking about, and so I loved seeing these little girls as knowledge producers, right, beginning their rehearsal for what they were going to do, um, and so that um, those letters became really important. Those again, letters had been there, right, um, but these little girls had not been sort of seen as central; um, they had been seen as receivers. Of the educational movement, but not sort of centered, you know, centered around right the heart of the movement, interlocutors of the movement, right, um, and future generation g- generational leaders of the movement.
0: And it's great because what you do is you show us how important when we st- when we try to think about you know generational activism and and really how those how activists are made. Right, I think about Susan Paul in Boston, and I think about you know the 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 myriad of you know folks, you know the the children who were at uh was it Prudence Crandall's uh a school, right? Uh, I think it was a, in a New Canaan or Connecticut or whatever. Um, and so so you know your your work is to me, um, showing me so much that. Future, uh, not even future people in the present, right, can read and to kind of like as a graduate student, kind of think about. Okay, I want to talk about this. Let me mine these footnotes right fast, right? And so, you know, and, and to think about someone whose footnotes have definitely been mined uh, a million to one times in her life, and that's Dr. Terry Hunter, uh, because your book, right, in, in terms of of a, a black uh, urban history of of, of an, an urban history of black women's lives right? I think that your work is also in her tradition um, as well. And so, um, you know, obviously you're not talking about, um, you know, the New South or Atlanta in particular, but um, you do touch upon particular elements of Dr. Hunter's work that I think are just so, you know, still was it 97, 98 when To Join My Freedom was, was published and still is the study, right? So you study or you discuss rather um, leisure and uh, sexual economies of uh, Washington, D.C. as well, which, oh, my gosh, some people might be surprised at that, too. Shouldn't be. But, you know, we, we, I'm sure there are some listeners out there, you know, avert your ears if you want to, I guess. Uh, but what did you research um, or, or rather how did your research uncover, you know, the, the leisure and, and sexual lives um, of, of black women in the district as well?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I was interested in this in the question of if and when black women became free, what were their options? Everybody didn't go to school or everybody didn't have the economic means to be able to attend school. I heard the school story, right. And I think this is kind of a new interpretation of the school story. Um, I heard the church story, right? Um, but I hadn't heard the sex story, right? And so, what I found, right, and I argue this in the book, is that to exclude sex and leisure would be generically absent, right, um, in this book, because it was so prevalent um, in the 19th century. Sex and leisure economies were so vital to Black women's economic survival in Washington, D.C. That, and it's like it's sitting right there, right? But because we have emphasized Right. How which I think is important. Right. To emphasize how African-Americans have overcome slavery. Right. um, And experienced emancipation in the district, built their own institutions. We have universities. Right. um, And banks and, you know, and churches. Um, That is a that is a huge part of the story. And so is sex and leisure and poverty. Right. And um, and so what it did, right, is it helped me to think about Cedric Robinson's framework of racial capitalism and all the ways in which even in the face of legal emancipation and freedom, black women still remain subjugated right, to the American labor economy in a way that really foreclosed so many of the economic possibilities of their world. And so prostitution um, and leisure economies helped provide a window um, into um, what that what that looked like. And so some people saw it as a short-term strategy, right? Let me get on my feet economically. I'll do some of this work, right? Um, but then I have goals, you know, beyond this work. Then there are some, right, who found it to be really profitable, right, even though they understood, right, the exploitative and violent conditions, right, that were um, were a possibility of this work. Many engaged in their own Forms of self-making by becoming prominent madams, right, and creating these very parlor-style um, sex experiences um, that were very much in line with what, you know, uh, prominent white madams were also um, doing. And so it gave them an ability to kind of create this economic uh, micro-empire, right, in, in the city. Um, but then also, right, um, leisure economies, you know, some of my favorite stories. Um, you know, not cause I think that like, it's good to get arrested. Right. But b- because one of the, like, there was one brother who like, you know, used his flat, right. For church service one night. And then the next night, like, you know, he went to jail because he was, you know, engaged in some, you know, you know, lewd activity. Right. And had workers going in there. And so you could have church in the space one night and then the next night have a leisure space. Right. And so, um, you know, these categories are not as fixed as we'd like to think that they are. They are not neat um, categories. People who host a, a camp meeting or prayer meeting um, may be a part of that life, maybe in the streets too, right? Um, so, Black folks are nuanced, right? And so, <laughs> and, and, and honestly, it made me think of um, leisure spaces in particular, made me think of my grandmother um who had migrated from Alabama, moved to Cleveland and um, you know, did domestic work. Um, but she also, when it was payday, had rent parties, you know, um, you know, and like they just kicked it. You know, they listened to music. Um, she fried up some fish, right? And and had some Pepsi Cola with maybe a little something, something in it, right? And then you pay a little fee at the door. Right. And that, was, that and that was her extra legal economy. Right. To continue. Right. To add some cushion to her coffers. Right. And so that knowing that about my grandmother. Right. Helped me sort of understand why these spaces might be so fluid, Um And it has a lot to do with, right, the limitations that are placed on these people's lives. Um, These black codes are still in effect, right? It's illegal to fly a kite in D.C. It's illegal, you know, to play cards in D.C., you know? And so I'm thinking about, you know, my grandmother playing bidwiz, right? Like, if that was criminalized, she was Mm going to play (laughs) bidwiz, right? So so even the things that we take for granted, right, um, are not... um, We have to contextualize criminalization as it has been linked to the institution of slavery and slave codes and black codes. Right. Um, And so that helped me sort of understand what are the possibilities if you become free. Right. Is freedom what we think it is. Right. Is freedom. Right. You immediately start going to church. You go to school. You know, you maybe have your own business. Right, or you um join a trade? No, freedom is a lot of things, right? And these yeah. women help with that story.
0: Yeah, there, there's there's so oh man, there, there's, there's so many directions. Uh, <laughs> that I want to go here. Uh, my goodness, do we have uh 500 more hours? Um, yeah. so so this is what I'll say. Um, one of the things I, I enjoyed about even just like that, that last little like last 30 seconds is that you talk about freedom. And I noticed, and this isn't even a question, more of an observation, there's freedom. The term freedom is not in your book. And, you know, I I don't know, like I didn't have this on, on the list of questions, but I actually think that, you know, in a, in a world where the term freedom is so often used, conjured, you know, freedom of, freedom to do, right? But I noticed that freedom is not actually a part of your title or subtitle, right? And... Yeah. I don't know, like, this is just something, um, stream of consciousness here, but was that intentional, right? Because I know liberty's there, but freedom is not. So can you talk to us maybe a bit about, like I said, this is just, you know, off the cuff here, you know, we, we just, you know, we just sitting, you know, at the conference right here, you know, saying we, we chilling, we got, we got our, you know, track suits or whatever we, we, we chill, we, you know, um, but yeah, I, I noticed that, that, that freedom is not present, but you know, as more of an observation and to also kind of think
1: about maybe why? hmm So the women in this book oftentimes use the word liberty, and that was intriguing to me. And so I kind of wanted to run with that, not because I think that freedom is um, an, an irrelevant or inapplicable term, but I thought it was a particular kind of choice that I was making to underscore the political nature of what liberty means to them, right? And so oftentimes... We've restricted terms of freedom to legal emancipation, right? Or, um, you know, to manumission, right? Into these very kind of formal claims. But there's this broader political spectrum of liberty, this broader discourse of liberty that people like Jefferson and Madison, right? And, you know, Hamilton are having about what this republic is supposed to be and what it's supposed to reflect. And like, this was really just a gesture to say Black women had something to say about it, right? Black women tested the scope and the reach of liberty in their own lives, right? And thought about it and um, and dreamed about it, right? And imagined it in different ways that we may not always anticipate. Um, so it was really just kind of a breakaway from kind of our kind of casual use of freedom, right? Um, but really thinking about sort of liberty being a... Um, having its own kind of political um, genealogy in the intellectual history of um, the Enlightenment and the founding of, of the nation. And so because this story of the nation's capital is so much so tethered to the founding moment, liberty became a term that became important to how I told the story.
0: Fascinating. Like I said, like I literally just had that thought as you were talking about it. So it's just, you know, it it just goes to show it's, uh, some things don't come until you're in conversation. Um, but also some things don't come unless you bring your whole self into the project. Right. Because your other point Mm -hmm. in your previous remarks was about, um, how, you know, you're reflecting on the experiences of your own family, um, and Mm -hmm. say where they're, Experiences in in you know the context of the nineteenth century in D.C., um, which goes to show, as a professor, why and and you know me as an aspiring one, oh, but I thought we couldn't bring ourselves selves into the work. I thought that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I can tell by my voice that I'm that I'm playing. <laughs> um, but um, but but I think that goes your story goes to show uh, why you need to bring yourself into the work because you never know how much texture your own family's experiences can provide to the lives of people, you know, um, within the frame of the archive, um, as well. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of the archive, I'm, I'm very much interested in, I'm, I'm a person who, you know, you, you, you had mentioned, uh, a uh, black women got something to say, it reminded me of Andre 3000 at the source Awards saying the South got something to say. Right. Yes. So I'm uh-huh. interested to know, right. In terms of who said what and who said this, did you have right because you've been working on this project right so I'm sure everybody got a little someone got a little favorite of, of they of they uh uh of that group, so do you actually have a favorite early black d c figure uh from the book and, and tell us why you chose that person
1: um honestly i don't i love i love all of these women for so many <laughs> for
0: sure
1: many different reasons um you know I think about the little girls in the book a lot um and think about the um, the kind of intellectual leaps they had to make in order to exist and survive in the society in which they were born and the, in the the legal frameworks in which they were born. Um, and so I really like, really in- admire them. But then I just admire a lot of these women, and most of the women um, that I couldn't say a lot about. Um, and a lot of it is because, right, um, many of us don't come from a prominent you know, Black middle-class lineage, right? The very few of us do. And I don't think that that's negative, but it was really, um, I felt a particular kind of connection to the ones that were unknown, um, the ones who we couldn't say a lot about, right? There was Anne Washington's mom, who um, was a washerwoman, who saved up her money so she could send her baby to school. And then she hosted a school in her room, Right. And so that, you know, it's it's women like that, right, who are against the odds, um, really trying to to engage in some autonomous action there. And so um, I'm just humbled, honestly, to be able to tell any of these stories. And I pray to God I didn't tell them poorly. So. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, um, P- Professor Dunbar, you know, said this in another setting that she writes for the ancestors and I'm right along, I'm right there with her. Um, I write, are my ancestors, please? Great, because I'm not here, right, to achieve, you know, some, you know, unreachable goal of objectivity. Um, that doesn't do anything for me, right? Um, and again, I come from a Black studies tradition, you know, and so this knowledge production is political. Um, and, and epistemologically significant, all the work that we collectively do, right, is, is, is really political work and, and important work. So, you know, as long as I do it with integrity, um, I'm, I'm happy with it.
0: Well, Hey, I think I, I I'm pretty sure the, the viewers and, and all the people buying your book are going to be pretty happy with it too. Um, so, you know, you, you had kind of actually gotten us moving towards this direction. So, so I'll take us fully here with this question. Um, what excites you most about the work you do not only as a writer and a historian, but also as a teacher and a professor, you know, you're about to mm-hmm. slide them, slide over mm-hmm. to, to, to the place with like, that God, lakes. You about to go to Ithaca. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, get, get, get some of the students over there excited about their new history professor.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, my, my first training ground and being a mentor, um, happened at Oberlin, um, and so um, I really take a lot of pride in being a mentor and seeing students be producers of ideas and knowledge, and if I can help support that um, and, and, and lend my weight to that work, I'm, I'm super thrilled and super happy, um, right, um, to be able to do that work. I love being a part of a generation of Black women historians. Um, I just have such deep admiration for everybody who's got skin in the game right now. And so whenever um, someone comes out with a book, it's in my Amazon cart. I'm ready to go. Let's go. Right. And so I am just so um, just honored to be a part of this generation of new scholars. Um, And then um, in terms of um, my decision to go to Cornell had everything to do with the possibility of helping to train future students in, um, in this work. And, and actually um, I had other offers, but I chose, um, I chose Cornell because I knew that um, they had the resources to make sure that graduate students, right, could really live um, and survive in those spaces. Um, and so we weren't worried about resources. Now we can just focus on the work. And um, and I was somebody who wasn't funded as a PhD student um, or as a master's student, so um, that cause is actually particularly um, significant <laughs> to me. So I, you know, thinking about um, what it what does it mean to fully resource and lend support to future generations who are going to be in this field, um, and so that work to me is very exciting, very humbling. Right, um, I lean a lot on my mentors in order right to just mm-hmm. just be in this space. Um, but honestly I love I love this work and there are times when this work is really hard. Um there are stories that I had to tell in that book and in in this new book that I'm writing that are that make me really upset um on a day to day basis. Um and so, you know, there's some care that goes into doing this work as well. But I find it incredibly fulfilling right to be able to dive into books and ideas and archives and, and find who I can find um, in these books and to tell their stories. Um, And I'm just honestly humbled that we get to do this work, you know, because um, sometimes I say, well, who am I to tell this story? Right. Um, But somebody's got, we've got to keep telling stories um, and keep telling this history and doing this work creating these ideas, these um, this analysis. Right. We need it. To, we needed to keep going. And so um, I'm just just really proud. Right. To be a part of this tradition and this tradition, meaning both the black studies tradition and also right the black women's history tradition as well.
0: And you're going to a place that got amazing people. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, shout out to Dr. Uh, uh, Ed Baptist, you know, yes, freedom, yes. you know, you, you, you know, you're going to be right there, you know, uh, freedom on the move. Shout out to Dr. Vanessa Holden and, and the team. Yes. Um, and uh, then you have, um, you know, Dr. Russell Rickford and yes. uh, Nolaway yes. Ricks over in Black Studies, um, yes. you know, and and you, 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 you good. Yeah. You good <laughs> you
1: awful. I like totally am like, A stand for like I totally am like a girl fan of all of these folks and um you know have have read their work closely. I'm really excited about Vanessa's book coming out. Um, I cite her articles. I'm just super just super stoked. Um, I remember reading Nola Way uh, Rooks's Ladies Pages like when I was getting my master's in black studies and just thinking it was like the most remarkable thing ever. And, um, Russell was also trained by Manning Mirable. And so, um, we share that, that experiences as, as well. So it's, you know, honestly, it's a small world. Um, and I'm so glad to be in it and so glad to be a part of the conversation.
0: Yes. Yes. You, you look, like I said, you, you, you know, uh, I grew up, um, as a, uh, as a, um, Tom Joyner morning show kid. So, uh, yeah, the ha is working in that tradition too. Uh, so, you know, shout out to, to, to that brother, Tom Joyner. Um, and so, you know, you talked about your mentors, um, you mm-hmm. know, like I said, this, wasn't on, on, on the thing, but you know, sometimes things mm-hmm. do come up. Yeah. Who, who who are some of these mentors that you might want to shout out on the podcast?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, the Bolia um, is, um, is a really important mentor for me. Um, honestly, I just, I love her. Um, just love her, um, as a human being, as a scholar. Um, I'm always reading through her books over and over and over again. Um, and, and, um, she, she puts up with me and, and lets me ask her lots of questions. And, and she graciously gives me advice. And she's an incredible, beautiful writer. Um, and so I just I just absolutely adore her. Um, Elizabeth Varon was my, um, my advisor at UVA. And she was just so incredibly supportive. Um, she, and anybody who's in UVA's history graduate department will tell you she's one of the best advisors on the planet, hands down. Like just, she's just, she's so supportive and um, brilliant um, and strategic, right? And yeah. so she taught me my strategy game. Like she taught me, you know, um, things about like how to decide when you're going to publish something, what kind of institutions you want to be at. How do you want to map out these next few years? Right. And so she just, um, to me, is, is a really important model and, and supporter. Gary Gallagher um, has really been incredibly supportive, especially in the Civil War arena. Um, you know, he has um, one of the most generous people on the planet. Um, as his student, he has put me in venues that. I may or may not have been ready for, but he, you know, he put me on. And so I'm so, so grateful. And he has been really supportive. Um, actually, your advisor, uh, Professor Dunbar, you know, there's um, <laughs> been a couple of times when we've been, um, you know, in each other's orbit. And I just love listening to her speak. Um, when A Fragile Freedom came out back in the day, you I was know. like, is that book. I was so excited and learning about the abolitionist friendship books. I was just like losing my mind, like when I—I I actually, um, she came to Oberlin to talk about Never Caught. And I was like, "But can I talk to you about a Fragile Freedom?" <laughs> was so tickled. But she, she honestly, her and um Gabrielle Foreman and and Dinah Berry um have really um shined a light on how powerful one can be, you know, when they are engaged mentors. And so, um not only are they leading scholars in their own right, but um they're they're modeling for us, you know um, what good mentoring looks like. um and so that that to me has been really, really significant. Um, I just and Deborah McDowell, oh, I just love her. She mm-hmm. right. has like a whole entire fan base on Twitter.
0: Look, I'm um, telling you,
1: she is an institution.
0: he is a whole institution.
1: I, I, I love it. her. That reading, reading pub shop is right back there. And I just, you know, and she is such a beautiful and meticulous writer. And um, when I open up her book, um, I just love, just love her writing, love, love, um, love reading her work. Um, Christina Sharp, she's just wonderful, good people. Um, I love her work. I had one, these are all people also who I like had one encounter with and I was like, this was amazing. So also may or may not count as an answer, but she, um, she was an advocate for me in ways that I can't really share on here, but like will forever stick with me for the rest of my life. And just the ethics behind what she does, what she does and what she says, um, to me left a lasting mark. Um, on my life. And then Jennifer Morgan, um, just amazing. She has read so much of my work. Um, bless her for reading my work because she had read it in the, some of the roughest stages. And she, just, and she still believed. She still believed in me. And so she, but she is wonderful. She's also just a model of wonderful scholarship. And then lastly, Fair Jasmine Griffin and Manning Marable at, um, at Columbia. What they do at IRIS, you know, the Institute for African-American studies and research is just like just, just beautiful work. Um, and, and they are true models, um, uh, for me, um, Dr. Manning Marable, the late Dr. Manning Marable, um, had faith in my work when it was in its worst shape. Um, so I, I always thought that he was, um, he went out on a limb, um, to, to, to advocate for my work, um, maybe he was prophetic i don't know um but um certainly just incredibly generous and i'll never forget that and it's those people who actually um remind me of the kind of mentor i want to be that generosity right and sowing into the people who have entrusted you to mentor them is is incredibly important and that's our that's our ethos in the field right and in, in the work that we do Whew,
0: man let me tell you, that was um, about to make a Negro cry. Lord mercy. that
1: mercy. Was, that,
0: was, that was a lovely. No, in, in all the best ways. That was, yeah. to me, um, you know, like I said, that wasn't originally on the roster, but I'm glad that, like, jazz just improv, you know, like, remix. We just with it. Because, to me, what you just showed was, like, a his, you know, a historical genealogy, uh, an intellectual ge- uh, genealogy. Um, that you know the the students that you're mentoring now and in the future at Cornell will, I'm sure say the same thing about you and now they have the understanding of all the different connections right that 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 that's on your map that's now connected to them. Um, it's such a beautiful way to kind of kind of uh, to take us there and and to take us back to the first person that you brought up, Dr. Glimp. Um, she also, I, I'm, I'm, if I remember correctly, you're going to be the one once this thing is over and you get this vaccine that you're going to rearrange her bookshelves. Uh, for... I'm
1: going to do what I'm going to try to do what I
0: can. So I'm sure she's, you know, waiting, waiting for that text to say, uh, uh on the way, you know, um, <laughs> and so, uh, to, and I also invoked her because I asked her a particular question during her roundtable, Um, and as, uh, you know, one of the, you know, Big figures that's emerging right now with all the different books that you're doing, um, and, and the st- and clearly the strategy that that uh, uh, Dr. Varone brought up that that I can see <laughs> on your CV and, and forthcoming, I can, I can see the, the 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 hands on that from her. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very much interested in the future of the field. Right, you talked about you know, black studies along with um, African American women, uh, African American women's history, and the like. So looking at it from your end of the spectrum, what do you think we need more of in terms of studies? Right. And or where do you think folks should try to mine in terms of directions for the field as we head um, into the into this next part of the decade?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I think that there's this answer can go in different directions. So the first direction I'm thinking about is um, Marissa Fuentes, Sadia Hartman and thinking about the archive. And so I think what what is to come is going to be much more innovative and creative uses of the archive and they have kind of paved the way along with theoretical works around slavery, race and gender um, and class. So I think that is kind of, sort of methodologically, right? And and in terms of genre, we're gonna get a little more creative. It's gonna get a little juiced up, that's my dream. And then um, the second thing is centering the epistemologies of the people that we're studying. Um, and so you see that with Jessica Marie Johnson's Wicked Flesh, um, just a very different reading of the sources to begin to center the ideas, the perspectives um the actions of the enslaved and so i think that we have such a really robust foundation now upon which to build um upon that and so um and then my forthcoming work will also think about right these epistemologies um and and, and, and really centering the ideas of a black folk in these early spaces
0: i love it i love it I, i'm i'm excited I'm excited. Uh, you 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 brought up so much there, and then even in your um, answer about intellectual genealogies and folks that are helping you, um, I got an early piece of uh, I got an early um, uh, PDF galley of um, Dr. Morgan's new book that's coming Yay. out. And let me tell you, look, we're not ready. Look, <laughs> look, I'm, look. I it's one of those things where I'm like, look, man, like that book. I had to just. Like, I read it probably, I think I got it in January. Uh, January. No, it, it was, matter of fact, I was in a podcasting institute for the National Humanities Center. And wow. when I tell you, we was in there doing something, and I looked at my phone, and I, I almost screamed and started cussing at the, so I was like, are you kidding me? I was just jazzed. And after reading the first, uh, the, the the I believe the introduction, I was like, I was like, man, first of all, I might need to get a a drink right quick because my head hurt. Um, And then second, I'm like, it's yeah, it's it's gone, man. I think it comes out. um, I think it comes out in May, uh, May or June. And so, you know, Duke University Press, once again, got themselves a good one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm excited. She's amazing.
0: She is. She is. I um I interviewed her last summer uh because uh, labor and women turned 16 and so yeah. um i had you know just a pretty much a oral history of uh labor and women you know and and how it came to be and also you know what it's done since um and yes. my goodness what a generous and kind and just amazing scholar and human being
1: she definitely is no she's she's a true gift so i'm i'm so excited about her forthcoming book
0: speaking of gifts Um, you know, we, we, we're going to have a little fun on our, on our final question here.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: If somebody gifted you with all the money that you need, right. Because now we're still mostly inside. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: so kind of curating our spots, right. A lot of people might be in their office, you know, on Mm -hmm. campus or at their home, but if money wasn't an issue, you got a Mm -hmm. gift, you got that. And if you had all the money in the world that you needed to build your own, your self, you know, made, you know, writing, reading and thinking space, what would it look like? What would it smell like? What art would you get? And maybe if you have a particular artist in mind. And lastly, what sense would you include? Right. Mm-hmm. Paint the picture for the people, Dr. Nunley. Yeah.
1: Definitely, I think about this a lot we if we're honest with ourselves we all think about this a lot all the time um, honestly it would be um, on on Lake Anna in Virginia because um, I love Virginia Virginia is like Virginia is my place mm-hmm. and I' the more that the older I get the, the, I'm not even from Virginia but I spent so much time there that's where all my research is and will be um, and so I just I love that place I hate that place too sometimes but um, that but part. Lake House, Small lake house on um, just right on the lake. Floor to ceiling windows. Um, adult library. Floor to ceiling library. Maybe with a ladder. I don't know. Yes. Um, <laughs> 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 maybe maybe a small like Kara Walker etching. Definitely lavender. Um, nice. And if I'm really and if I'm really if I really have my life together, lavender that I grew. let hey, Okay. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's what it that's what what it would be. It would be a very kind of calm place, a contemplative space. And I thought about this too because um, watching the documentary on Toni Morrison. um, Oh my gosh! Talk about a motivator. Oh my goodness. Um, Yeah. So she, you know, I think you know, just being around water, and also um, just what it means to be in a calming space Mm. um, to to live in this live in this era. Of um, anti-black violence, um, right, and, and political and political turmoil, public health crisis. Like, what does it mean for us to radically care for ourselves um, and to dream and to be well? And so, I, I think all of those ideas are really important for us to kind of keep at the forefront of our mind. I love this question um, because I think, like, you know, if I learned anything from the women in this book, is to dream, mm. is to imagine. Is to imagine one's liberty and what that looks like and how that how how that manifests itself.
0: Look, my goodness, y'all! This has been a wild and amazing and just like just beautiful hour and fifteen plus minutes that we've been on here with Cornell University's new history professor, none <laughs> other than Dr. Tamiko Y Nunley, and she's been on <laughs> here today to discuss her brand new book published by our friends at UNC Press. Shout out, Debbie. Shout out, Mark. Shout out the whole crew over there. You know what I'm saying? Shout out to the newly um, retired uh, Gina Mahalik. You know what I'm saying? She's helped me out a lot in the last couple of years with UNC Press books. So we've talked about people that's helped you out in in the last couple of years. So I got to add that too. Um, And um, it's just been an amazing opportunity to talk to you about this amazing book, At the Threshold of Liberty, Women, Slavery, and Shifting Identities in Washington, D.C., published in 2021, once again by UNC. And as a final bit, just the fact that we can talk about uh, A Fragile Freedom from Dr. Dunbar, to me, one of my (laughs) favorite books. See, and people, you know, obviously never caught, you know, banger, you know, uh, She Came to Slay banger, you know what I'm saying? Amazing books. But I also think too, at the, you know, a a fragile freedom needs to get some love, right? Look, and and as I'm writing my dissertation proposal and thinking about, you know, uh, uh, enslaved and and also unfree black women, um, at the Mm -hmm. end of, um, the 18th century, um, as the, you know, as the, uh, Commonwealth of uh, Pennsylvania changes, Mm -hmm. um, with the 1780 act, you know, at, you know, uh, A Fragile Freedom is that book. You know what I'm saying? So, Dr. Dunbar, you going to get this love right here. You know what I'm saying? Yes, that, absolutely.
1: That's book. And she's probably going to crack up because I totally, like, accosted her about it. I was like, but A Fragile Freedom, that's my jam. And I like, and I was, like, holding it. It was, like, tattered. It was really, really funny.
0: <laughs> Look, and let me tell you, I was actually, speaking of Dr. Gabrielle Foreman, I was actually at Penn
1: mm-hmm. when
0: I bought that book originally because I was at a... um. Uh, a humanities, uh, a digital humanities conference at Penn. Mm-hmm. I think in the summer mm-hmm. of 2018, and it was in that time that I bought uh, uh, a Fragile Freedom before I thought about transferring two records. So, talking about prophetic, you know. What I'm saying
1: they yeah, got a prophetic purchase.
0: It was a prophetic purchase, and I love that alliteration. I love that alliteration. <laughs> it is amazing. And so, y'all, please go and get this book. Please go support, you know, our local uh, bookstores. You know, if you're in the Philadelphia area, go give a shout out to uh, Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books, Mark on My Hills Bookstore. Also check out um, a bookstore as well, Harriet's Bookshop um, in Philadelphia as well. And please go out and buy this amazing book. And if for no other reason, who don't want to talk about liberty and black women? Come on now. Y'all know what it is. And so... Once again, y'all, my name is Adam McNeil, your host in New Books and African American Studies, uh channel on the New Books Network. If you like this uh episode, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please, y'all, like Dr. Nelly said, radical self-care, take care of yourselves, go get some sun if you can. It's starting to get warm outside. Get that, get not only uh uh you know, try to have a little good time, but also get that vaccination if you can. Get that vaccination if you can. And so, until next time, y'all, Adam McNeil. New Books in African-American Studies. (sighs) Great episode again, y'all. Over and out.